Uh, my name is, is Mike Gakey, and I, as Joey mentioned, I'm at First Baptist Church of San Francisco. Uh, we are a church plant. We were a church plant in 1849. So we have, um, we were literally a church plant from the East Coast, a missionary sent to San Francisco in 1849. Um, so we have been around a long time, and in all of those years have been um, seeking to be faithful to God's word and to be um, a light in the city of San Francisco. And we currently are kind of situated right in the heart of San Francisco. We are literally across the street. I, I used to look directly out of my office before I moved offices at the big wall of the LGBTQ community center in San Francisco. We are right in the middle of everything. And it's um, we don't have all the answers, I'll tell you that. But it, we have to learn how to have conversations and and really, um, I hope to be a redemptive voice um, on this issue. So let me pray and let's, we'll jump in. God, thank you for today. Um, as always, when we talk about um, issues and when we talk about um, cultural things that are impacting um, our world, uh, that sometimes impact our church, that sometimes impact us as individuals, it's very easy to um, lose sight of the fact that that we aren't talking about issues, we aren't talking about culture, we're talking about souls. And within each of the issues in the culture that we um, are, we struggle with sometimes, God, are f- we, we find souls that are precious to you, that are made in your image, um, and God, that are in, in great need of the life-changing power of the gospel. And so I pray, God, that you would keep us this afternoon from... Um, losing the humanity of the people that we are talking about. Give us um, your heart uh, for people. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to start with just a little story. Um, About 22 years ago, um, well, actually, it was in in 1999. Um, I was on a run, and I was about two years into um, the restoration of, of my marriage. My wife Stephanie's right down here. Um, we, I had left her prior to that to pursue homosexuality, to give in to my own feelings of same-sex attraction. We had reconciled. We were on this journey of restoration, me personally, Stephanie personally, and us as a couple. And I was practicing law at the time and was on a run. And an image of a young man popped into my head. We had... We were living in Midland, Texas at the time, but, but I had left Stephanie after we had, I had moved us to another town where I was going back to school. And in that other town, we had been a part of the First Baptist Church of that town. And we were good Baptists. We weren't great Baptists. We were Sunday morning, Sunday night Baptists, but not Wednesday night. <laughs> so we had limits. But, but they had a large college ministry, and there was a young man who caught our attention. They had a college service that was like at 930 between the, the 8th. 30 service in the 11th service or whatever and they were always exiting as we were coming in and there was a young man who caught my attention one day and the way he wore his glasses is really what what just made me notice him but then I started noticing him at church all the time I noticed him on Sunday night and Sunday morning surrounded by his friends obviously very active in the college ministry I had gone back to school at the time and I saw him on campus as well, and I saw him, um, he was a part of a Christian fraternity on campus. He was always surrounded by friends, and, and when I first noticed him, I thought, he, he looks like me in college. Went to Baylor and was very active and, and had always uh, just desired, had a natural inborn desire for, for Jesus, and I was, I was drawn to uh, spiritual things. 
And I remember noticing him. This is before I left Stephanie. Everything sort of implodes. I tell Stephanie that I'm gay, that I don't want to be married. I leave her. I jump into the gay community of Lubbock, Texas. After jumping into the gay community one night, I was at the gay bar in town. And I looked out on the dance floor. And I was with my friends, my new friends. I look out on the dance floor, and here's this boy from First Baptist dancing with another boy. And I I laughed and I told my friends about him, about how involved he was at church, about how he was in a Christian fraternity, and we nicknamed him Baptist Boy. And we saw him around the bar frequently on weekends. Well, I hadn't really thought about him. Now I'm, I'm several months out of that, two years and several months away from all that. God has been doing this amazing work in my life and in Stephanie's and in our marriage and I'm on this run and suddenly this boy's image pops into my head and I just started crying on my run because I thought I know the conflict in that kid's heart I know how he felt on Friday nights and how he felt on Sunday morning I knew the battle that was going on between this desire for connection with the Lord and this desire to be what what he felt would be the only way he could be fulfilled romantically and sexually. And as I ran, I realized that our churches and Christian communities are full of Baptist boys and Baptist girls, no matter what your denomination is. There are people in our churches, there are people in our spheres of influence who are struggling and who are in conflict. You may meet them when they're not in conflict anymore. But I promise you, every one of them has a time when they are in conflict. And I realized as I ran, I thought, I can't can't keep in what God has shown me, what God has done in me. I uh, I can't just go on my life with this little secret past when there are people who are struggling and suffering in our churches. Initially, my, my primary focus was how do we, how do we, help people in our churches who are struggling. I think the confusion in this area for our young people and for all of us really is is stronger now, obviously, than it was in 1996 when I left Stephanie, 1999 when God put Baptist Boy into my brain. I think the church is still largely um, unhelpful in this issue. Um, it's unhelpful like it was back then in, in that back then what I remember mainly is we just didn't talk about sex at all. There was no room or no space to bring your struggles into the light. We didn't have um, a vision of a biblical sexual ethic. You had a, you had a don't have sex till you get married mentality. And there wasn't even in that a discussion. Um, and I think we're still largely like that. But, then, but now we're, we're unhelpful in another way where the church tries too hard to fit itself into the cultural idea of what's appropriate sexually. So, so we, we can't be just sort of like, let's not talk about it. We'll tell you what's right and wrong and assume that's going to work. Or we can say, huh, I think I'm going to sort of change my message to make it more palatable. And that's not helpful either. Both of those are dangerous for people who are dealing with same-sex attraction. And so I think we have to talk about it. I, I believe that it is part of our calling as Christ followers. It is call, part of our calling to be sharers of the gospel to the lost, but also ministers of the gospel to the saved. 
Because the gospel is not just everything we, as you've heard this morning, as we heard this morning, the gospel is not just a thing for the moment that saves you. It's the thing that compels us and informs our life until we meet Jesus face to face, until we celebrate with him in heaven like we heard talked about this morning. Here's what I think is the huge problem in our churches and why we, 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 have, we have not been a voice of redemption there's this, um, this relationship of experience and truth, and I want to talk to you. By the way, I have some, I have just a few handouts. I, I really didn't, I was like, oh, I wouldn't want to come hear me if I was at this conference with, <laughs> with D.A. Carson. And, uh, um, so I, I have a few. I'll just pass these out. You don't need them. They're, very, they're just to take notes in case any of you are interested um, in jotting down anything outside of your notebooks. Um, so here's the way God's word is supposed to work. God's word is this amazing gift that we have, God's voice to us. God breathed it out, and it's useful, it's profitable, it says, for teaching and for correction and for reproof and for training in righteousness. Psalm 119, this amazing picture of what God's word is, it's, it's, in, it's designed to illuminate our lives, to shine light on our lives, to give meaning to what we experience. But here's where we ha- our problem is that the church has not been the safest place to bring what we experience into the light. So what happens then is we begin to change our understanding of Scripture to fit our experience. Instead of allowing Scripture to shine light on our experience, we turn it around. We go, oh, this is experience, therefore God's Word must not say what I thought it said. That was very much me when I left Stephanie and I, and I fell in for a pro. I, I fell for a very gay-affirming theology because my experience had been, I struggle with this. I'm not supposed to struggle with this. I've prayed for God to take it away. God didn't take it away. Therefore, God's word must not mean what I thought it meant. And I, if you find churches that go off on different directions, very often it's because a pastor has had an experience in their life that has caused them to question what God's word really said. A son or a daughter is gay. A good friend is gay. This is where people say, well, I've, you know, I always I know what the Bible says, but my neighbors are lesbians and they're so nice. They're nicer than a lot of Christians I know. My experience is that that's really good. Therefore, God's word must be wrong. So we have to have a place where we bring experience out and shine the light of God's word on it to give meaning to it. That's that was my whole process when I came back home, okay, this is my experience. I'm not going to deny one thing about my experience. God, shine your light on it from your word and, and guide me. Enlighten my path. Illuminate my path. I think that we have to be so careful um, that we, we don't need to be, it's not helpful for us as Christians to be too soft on this whole issue, if we really believe that God's word calls things sin for a reason, that sin is dangerous for both unbelievers and for believers, if we, if we really believe that, we, we can't just ignore or tolerate it, right? We can't be too soft and just think it's being kind to not ever address anything. But we also can't be too harsh. And that, that has also historically been our problem as a church. Uh, the way I always say this is that truth without grace is powerful but partial. Grace without truth is beautiful but partial. Grace and truth together are powerful and beautiful and complete. We have to learn how do we express truth 
with grace. How do we show grace with the power of the truth? So I'm going to share a little bit. Um, I just think this is so important. I think um, I think that you can kind of think this this isn't a big deal, but a crumbling biblical ethic on sexuality will fracture the foundation of the church, and I think we are seeing that. It is different than other sins. So, so a lot of times what we want to say is, I, I don't think we should talk about that because it's just like every other sin. It is in, in the big s- spiritual scheme of sin, but here's why it is different. There's no other sin, sinful behavior. So when you're talking about homosexuality, let's talk about expression. I, I also, uh, or identity even, not the feelings, not the struggle, but the expression of that. There's nothing like it that has a community built around it that is seeking um, societal acceptance. You don't see churches shifting positions on anything else like it. It's unique that way. And we have to just understand that and accept that. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean we bow up more to fight it more. It means we just understand that it is different in that way. You won't have anybody come into your church probably and want to, um, want to be um, welcomed as um, a serial liar okay nobody's going to say we should just all be allowed to lie you don't have people come in and say i understand your um uh that you believe the bible says that gossip is wrong but i plan to be in a small group and i plan to gossip (laughs) it's different that way so that's why we have to take it seriously i think if nothing else it's just we take it seriously and we really ask god to guide us um, on how we can be a redemptive voice. And that's, that's my prayer. I love the emphasis on the gospel. I'm going to emphasize the gospel again. We need to be a voice of redemption. It's not ultimately about sex. It's ultimately about souls. It's ultimately about surrender. It's ultimately about allowing God's transformative power to infiltrate our hearts. So I want to start with just, I think, some prerequisites. And I believe these are for pastors. I believe these are for church leaders. I believe these are for every Christian. If you want to be able to speak into this issue, I often tell when I speak at churches, I'm like, you may need to pull back your oratory until you've allowed God to do some work in your hearts. So sometimes we jump the gun on issues, and God God needs to do some work in our hearts first. Um, The first one is this. I'm so blessed by what I heard this morning because I don't need to talk about this very much. But you need to get the gospel. You need to understand what the gospel really means. Uh, It was beautifully um, taught about this morning by um, both Dr. Carson and Afroshim. Um, (laughs) But we have to realize that this is not about making people feel better. It's not about us loving people. It's not about making their life easier or, or making everybody more comfortable. People are dying. People are dead, as we heard this morning. And they are on a path to eternal deadness. We have to understand that, that eternity is at stake for people. And sometimes we don't like to think about that. We ignore that reality. It makes us kind of say, oh, this sweet couple that lives next door to me, they just, you know, I, I don't want to push anything on them. And, and, but if we see that sweet couple and we don't have a thought of, of my calling as a Christ follower, my, it's not to save them, but my calling is to share the gospel with them. Not, and, and it's not, I realize that might make them uncomfortable, but it's, 
a little uncomfort, a little discomfort is better than the alternative. We have to have a mindset of that. We have to realize that the gospel is, a, is power, and it is power for now, and it is power for eternity. So, so I kind of grew up with you got saved, or you were saved. I, I grew up in one of those, you were kind of born into Christianity homes. Um, but, but it was a faithful home. I, there was a point in my life when I realized something personally, but, but, it, but I didn't have a sense of, of the ongoing power. I didn't have a sense of abundant life for now and for eternity. So we have, to be, we have to realize that there's something powerful in the gospel. No matter how good somebody looks, the gospel has power for their life now. And then we have to remember that the gospel is not about getting us our best life now. This is, it, is not a, uh, it, it, is, it, it is not just so that we will reap the benefits of the gospel. That's where one of the speakers this morning, I don't remember, said, you know, when you're really, really poor, if you're in a really, really poor country, you can kind of think about heaven and it can look better. But if you're in San Francisco where everybody has everything, heaven doesn't look that much better than what they already have. It's very much the same same thing. If your life looks pretty good and, and you think the gospel gives you a better life, then you feel like there's no reason to share the gospel when their life is already good. Um, the gospel is to reconnect us with the God of the universe. That's what the gospel is. It is to give us relationship. It is to repurpose our lives away from self-fulfillment to God-glorifying. And it's ultimately to create the eternal church that will, will surround Jesus Christ, playing those joyful harps for eternity. We are not promised as Christians our best life now. What we are promised is that we are going to be odd outcasts. And Jesus calls us, uh, I loved how Afshin, just his whole story testifies to this, but Jesus calls us to live a life that is very different from the world. He says, you are going to be odd outcasts, and I'm calling you to leave all, to die to all, to serve all, and to endure all. And if we don't have an understanding of that for ourselves, we are not going to be a voice into anybody in the lost world, much less people who are sexually confused or who are pursuing something that is sexually outside of God's word. You need to understand the gospel personally, and you need to believe it. If you don't understand the gospel Homosexuality just becomes about behavior. That's what, just don't do that. If they just wouldn't do that, then you've missed it. And then you need to know, number two, you need to know a biblical sexual ethic. So I did not grow up learning a biblical sexual ethic. I grew up learning that you don't have sex until you get married. And sex is sexual intercourse, and all the stuff between zero and sexual intercourse was just sort of up in the air, Right? He's like, oh, I, well, I didn't have sex. And that was my whole thing. Don't have sex. Don't have intercourse. That's not a biblical sexual ethic. Biblical sexual ethic is not what, do, what you do and what you don't do. A biblical sexual ethic is getting into God's creation of man and of woman and of the unique design of both and how God designed them to come together to create this perfect picture of God to the world. <coughs> Excuse me, to the world. Can you get me a bottle of water? Um, this picture of marriage and of sex and why sex is, why you keep sex outside of, uh, why you don't have sex before marriage. The spiritual nature of sex, the spiritual union of two people that happens in sex. It's a picture of marriage that is not just about making sure you're not lonely 
or giving you a vehicle to have a family or make yourself be more stable or all the things that we hear about marriage. It's understanding that marriage is to be an evangelistic expression. It's, it's to show the world sacrificial love and submission in a way that reveals and shows the world the gospel. That's a biblical sexual ethic in a nutshell. That is so much different than what we, if we don't know that, then we will just say, you're just not supposed to be gay. And, and that's not compelling. It, it, it becomes behavior modification instead of saying, God has something much, much more for you within his design. And again, if you doubt this, if you don't know a biblical sexual ethic, you will fall prey to that experiential theology of sexuality where you find yourself saying, I don't really understand what could be so wrong with that. What's so bad about that? Why, why wouldn't, what, what's, what's, what's the big deal? And if, that's, if you found yourself saying those things, what that means is, is you're not dug into what God has to say about sexuality. And he says a lot. He says a lot about sexuality. There's a reason that God gave us sexual boundaries. There's a reason God gave us gender boundaries. And it's, it's interesting. When I was in my process with Stephanie in the early days, I had fallen prey to this sort of really pro-gay affirming theology. And when I came back home, I came back home because the Lord wooed me home with his kindness. It wasn't because I had this lightning bolt that said everything you've been thinking is wrong and you've been sinning. and you're, It was like his kindness led me to repentance, but I still was wrestling with what about what his word really says. What does it really say? And, and the thing that, that compelled me to keep going was not the six references to homosexuality where it says homosexuality is wrong. And all, you know, the, the pro-gay theology has a reason why each of those don't mean homosexuality. So I, I've come to believe that, that they mean exactly what they say. But at that time, I, I removed those six from my thinking, and I just focused on God's picture that I saw, his creation of man and woman, the design for them to come together, the purpose of marriage. And I realized homosexuality didn't fit within that. That was what motivated me. And it was also what gave me great hope. The thought of our messy marriage someday reflecting Jesus to the world gave me hope and then the last thing is you need to live the biblical sexual ethic so you can't ask somebody to abide by something that you don't abide by that means that you abide by it in your practices means you are not engaging sexually outside of marriage it means within your marriage you're not um you're not having affairs you're not looking at pornography you you, you're living this this um biblical sexual ethic but one of the, I went to, a, I spoke at something for the ear. I'll see one time, and I was in this private meeting with a very popular uh, pastor, and there were a bunch of gay, gay Christians from a gay-affirming side, and then there, was, then there was us, and we were having this discussion, and this very popular evangelical pastor, he said, I don't know that it's fair to deny, that we in the church deny you all um, your sexual fulfillment. And that's, that's a miss, that he has not lived, if you put your sexual fulfillment above all, you're not living a biblical sexual ethic. It is not about the, God was um, gracious to give us pleasure in that sexual thing, sexual union. But that is not above all. Above all, we are Christ followers. And that's why sometimes when we're called to celibacy, when things don't work out like we thought sexually, we, we surrender that to God and we say, my sexual pleasure is not my utmost need. And if we are thinking, I don't think it's fair to tell them they can't have sex, then we're struggling in that biblical sexual ethic ourselves. 
Okay, I think those are foundational things that everybody has to think about. And like I said, we haven't talked a lot about those in our churches. Um, so you may have to do some outside research. The best place to find good materials is the Gospel Coalition and the ERLC, Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. I think those are the most trustworthy sources on sexuality. <coughs> I think what we've seen in the last months in our country is that a world's, the world's sexual ethic doesn't work. And I'm not just talking about homosexuality. I'm talking about this sexual revolution of open sexuality. We're seeing that play out in this whole Me Too thing. This sort of free sexuality and licentiousness, it has so many holes. And it, 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 it's because that's not how God designed sex to work. And it, so all of a sudden, somebody's liberty is somebody else's oppression. And it doesn't fit. And all of a sudden, these people who thought, uh, I thought sex wasn't that big a deal are realizing it is a big deal. It, sex in this way really hurt me. Or I don't feel fulfilled or I feel damaged. It's not working because it's not what God is in, has intended. But our hope is not in just standing on a biblical sexual ethic. So when I first started doing ministry, I thought conservative churches, they're going to want to talk to me. The liberal churches probably aren't going to want anything to do with me. But you know what I found when I went to conservative churches? We don't need to talk about this. We believe that that is wrong. They stood on their biblical sexual ethic as if they'd had to do nothing else. But that does not open the door for people to come in with their experience and shine the light on it. It shuts the door. So we can't just stand on that. Russell Moore says this. We have to be ready in the church to minister to the refugees of the sexual revolution. They will come. And I don't know when we'll see it. But they will because it hurts. And it's not how God designed and it won't be fulfilling and there will be damaging and they will come and we need to be ready to minister. And you don't minister just by telling them that what they did was wrong. And that's what we're going to talk about now. I think um, as we think about how to speak, any questions, any comments on that before I move on? A couple, maybe, if you have one. If not, we'll do, try to do some questions at the end. Okay. One of the things I think that we need to be really careful for, this is in our churches, if you're a church leader or you're a ministry leader, but also in our relationships, as we talk. It's so In San Francisco, uh, we don't have an issue with people being hateful towards the gay community or the transgender community. We all know people. We live next to people. We have neighbors. We, um, we work with people. It's not that we don't like them. It's more like we don't know how to talk to them about this. Or we don't want to offend them. Or we are afraid that if they know that we're a Christian, that they won't be our friends anymore. So I think we all wrestle in, in our relational connection with people, whether we're in uh, a specific ministry or not. Um, and this is something that I have come, in really my five years in San Francisco, I think this has become more important to me. And I see it as more important for us as Christ followers. And that is that we need to be clear. Sometimes we try too hard to be nuanced in what we say. And in our nuance, we don't say anything at all. So I know you're a Christian. What do you think about me? Oh, I, I, uh, I think you're really good. I like you a lot. You're really sweet. I know, and you're like, I know they're asking about what I think about their lifestyle. I know they're thinking, asking me about with their partner. I know they're asking about, I know what they're trying to ask me, but I don't want to say anything like that. So we just sort of just say, we just don't talk, say anything. We need to learn to be clear. I think that nuance in our modern culture and climate, if we are overly nuanced, 
it can be really dangerous. Uh, I talk with a lot of parents, and they, 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 I'm, I ask them, you know, does, does your child know where you stand on this issue? And, this, and if they say this, I think so, then they probably don't. You know, and, and it'll come up with like they're, they're saying, well, they just keep telling me about things and they're inviting me to do these things and, and I'm uncomfortable with it and I'm not quite sure how I'm supposed to respond and I don't know how to, you know, because they haven't wanted to say anything. So we need to know how to talk clearly. But sometimes nuance leaves and it, and it will impact more of your testimony than just this issue over time. Um, but it leaves your ultimate beliefs hidden behind safe, unoffensive language. It's very easy. It's a lot easier to not say anything. But you're not saying anything. And very rarely, a lot of times what we think is, I'm not going to say anything now. I'm going to wait. I'm going to wait. But it only gets harder the more you wait because you know what happens after a year of, of interaction when suddenly you come in and say what you believe? They feel like they've been betrayed or lied to. It creates bitterness. Um, for the church, when the church does that, it's like a bait and switch. You know, it's like, hey, there's no issues. We, we, there's no issues with anything. It's just about, um, uh, you know, it's just about you, um, you know, the, it, grace. It's just about grace. It's just about grace. We're not doing it. And, and then they come and they go for, they want to be a member. And then you're like, well, sorry, we do have this policy uh, that, you know, practicing homosexual can't be a member here which is not you know, a perfectly legitimate idea, but if they have never had any idea that your church might have a differing sexual ethic than the one they believe, they will be mad and they will feel betrayed. And what you end up doing is pushing them further away from the church than they were at the beginning. So you have to learn how to be clear and you have to learn how to do that graciously. At some point, you're going to have to say what you believe. Now, the... The issue is, is that God's word, it tells us that his word is offensive. You know, it's, it, it says to some it is life, the aroma of life. To some it is the stench of death. What you want to do is just make sure you're not offensive. Okay? You don't want to be the offensive one. Let God's word be offensive. God can handle it. But you, in the way you treat people, in the kindness you show people, in your own personal vulnerability with your own stuff, you can keep yourself from being offensive. That means you, you be on, you're honest, but you're not arrogant. So you're honest, but you're not arrogant in that. You let people know, you know, you struggle with things too. There are things that you um, have struggled with all your life that feel very natural to you. You understand what that feels like. You know that it's uh, difficult, but you struggle with things too. You want to be honest, but not simplistic. So that means if somebody comes to you and says, um, uh, I don't think I want to be gay anymore. You say, great, you know, here's five steps to heterosexuality. Um, and if you do it every week, you'll be done in six months and everything's going to be good. And, and you laugh, but there's, I mean, that may be a little bit extreme, but that's sometimes what people are promised. Like, oh, oh go over here and everything's going to be fine. So, so that's a little bit too simplistic. So you want to be honest, but you don't want to be arrogant. You don't want to be simplistic. You don't want to focus people on the results you want to focus people on Jesus. I don't know. I don't know what God has for you. I know he has something for you. There are things I have struggled with that I hoped God would take away, but he hasn't. But he has met me in the middle of that struggle. And he will do that for you. I prom you, know, that, you want to point people to Jesus, not point people to the results. 
And again, um, I think you need to, we need to, as we speak about this, we need to start with the why. So the, the what and the how are often where we go, but we want to start with the why. Why does this matter? Because God designed something beautiful for an incredible purpose. There's a reason why God put boundaries around gender and sexuality. There's a why behind it. We did a series at our church for our youth on sexuality. We were very careful to, to spend the first weeks talking about the why, to paint a picture of the beautiful, fulfilling, uh, biblical sexual ethic. We wanted to give them something that said, this is, the, this is why God has done this, because they're all wanting to know, well, why can't you do this, and why can't you do that? They want to know why God has put these boundaries in place. You know, like, well, here we're going to tell you why. Not just because he said so, but because here's what sex is really designed to do. Here's what marriage is designed to do. Here's how, here's how that works in a singleness or in celibacy. Uh, we, we, we start with the why, and then you can talk about some of the specifics. Do not take people a list of do's and don'ts first. It doesn't work. Second thing is, uh, so you need to be clear, and then you need to listen. And this is another thing I think we struggle with in the church. You need to create in your relationships or in your church a safe place to express experience. I love what the Village Church, it's a big church in Dallas. They say it's okay to not be okay. It's not okay to stay there. So it's okay to not be okay. We need to have places where it's safe to come and share what our experiences are. I often wonder what would, it, what would have happened in eighth grade if I had had a place in my church to go and say, I'm petrified because I'm attracted to other boys. I don't want to be gay. I don't want that. I want a wife and I want kids someday. And I, I, don't, I know what God's word says. If I, I just don't know what to do. I don't know. I have this, but I didn't have that. And so many of our, our teenagers express that to me when I talk to them. I can't tell somebody about this. I can't tell my parents. I don't know what, I, my, what my youth leader will say. We need to have a safe place to give experience, and we need to be careful as we listen to experience. So here's what I always encourage people to do with their gay neighbors as this comes up. Get in, ask, just listen to them. Listen to their story. If you listen to the story of somebody who's gay beyond their, maybe they're kind of got their heels dug in right now, maybe they don't want to talk to you, but you ask them, just, so how long have you known? When did you first feel this way? So how did it go with your parents? How was it being in school? You start asking questions. You, here's, it, it, there's two sides of it. First of all, that's a relationship, okay? That's what a relationship is. You don't have the right to come in with any of your beliefs or anything if you don't have a relationship anyway. But the, the other side of that is it, it, allow, it gives you an opportunity to look for the deeper issues of homosexuality in that person, Sex is the end of homosexuality. It starts much earlier in a lot of conflict and confusion. And, and that's so often that is where the gospel speaks so beautifully into. But if all you're looking at is their current state, you might miss those opportunities to share the gospel into their experiences, to allow the gospel to shine light on their experiences. And you want to be careful that you never contradict someone's experience. A lot of times in the church, we want to tell them, oh, no, that's not that's not you. No, that didn't, you know, you, we want to, especially if it's in our family, if you're of a parent, oftentimes we want to contradict experience. You don't want to contradict experience, but you also don't want to be afraid to contradict conclusions or to contradict um, mandates that they may be expressing or, 
or contradict definitive expressions of hope or hopelessness. So, so that's different than an experience. So you want to bring, if there's an opportunity to speak truth into something that's not truth, you, you don't want to uh, miss that opportunity. Stephanie says it like this, and I love this picture. She says a lot of times we have expectations of things that are either really good or really bad. So you have someone struggling with same-sex attraction, and they come to you, and, and they say, I don't think I'm ever, this is never going to change. I'm never going to be happy. If I, if I don't pursue homosexuality, I'm going to be miserable and lonely for the rest of my life. So that's a negative expectation. They may have a positive expectation. If I just accept Jesus, he is going to zap me with the homosexuality zapper, a heterosexuality zapper, and I am never going to struggle with this again. So you have negative expectation and maybe a positive expectation. Both of those, um, if you are overly focused on those, you miss what God is actually doing. So you want to pull people away from ex- expectations to expectancy. So if, if there's a dot on the wall and that's my expectation, I'm so focused on that. This is never going to happen or this is surely going to happen. And God is over here doing something that he wanted to do. You miss it because you're so focused. You want to pull away from the dot. You want to be expectant for God to work. And that means that you all don't have preconceived ideas about what the future looks like for your gay friends or for a, a struggling person in your church. You don't know. You don't know what God has for them, but you know God will work in it. And so you pull back and you wait for God to work. Number three, you walk with people towards Jesus. You don't farm them out. Oh, thank you so much for sharing that. Here's somebody that you need to go talk to. Now, that may be, you may have somebody they should go talk to also. But you stay connected and you walk with them to Jesus. Sexual brokenness of all kinds, whether it's transgender or or homosexuality or heterosexual promiscuity it's all the same it is his identity problem it is a core identity problem me as a as a young man struggling i I struggled with who i was as a man and i needed other men to try to somehow complete or make me feel like a man my my masculinity was off a lot of um women who struggle with lesbianism it's it's similar thing they're fighting they they don't they feel vulnerable or unsafe as a woman and, and then ironically, they find then safety with other women because they feel vulnerable with men or they feel at risk with men. Transgender is a very clear picture of a, of a broken identity. Now, you don't find your identity, though, in it wasn't me learning how to do sports. It, you know, it's not um, somebody struggling with lesbianism, you know, making themselves look prettier. It's not some stereotypical male-female thing. What it means is you walk with them to Jesus and let him show them who they are as men and as women in him. I had a mentor in the early days. He said, you have no idea who you are. You have let other people define you. You have let your feelings define you. He says, you are, you're not defined by either of those things. You are defined as a man by the God who created you. And do you know something? There's a lot in here about who you are as a man. And, he, and you know what he challenged me to do? I was so mad because I wanted him to fix my homosexuality. He never even talked about my homosexuality. He said, he put, said, I want you just to get in here, and every time God says something about you, you write it down. That's who you are. Every time God says something about him, you write it down because that's who he is, and you have a very skewed picture of God. And you've also asked for God for a lot of things he hasn't promised you, but he's promised you thousands of things in his word. Every time he makes you a promise, you write it down. 
And I began to, to do that. I got into the word and I discovered who I was. I always thought that things I liked to do were feminine. And he said, You're, it's not, cooking is not feminine. The things you like are not feminine. He said, you are by definition masculine because God made you a man. And it freed me up just to, to realize it's not about what I do. It's not about how I line up with other men. I can be a man because God made me a man. And then even in marriage, the struggle I had, assuming my role as a husband and, and later as a father, my, my masculinity was broken. I, I had to constantly go to God and say, you made me a man. You've called me to live as a man. You will equip me to be the man you've called me to be, and, and you will give me joy in that. But I needed people to walk with me to say, you're good. You're good. You're doing good. Let's go to Jesus together. Let's walk with Jesus together. And most of us could, could stand a little walking towards Jesus too. We're all identity broken. You may just be broken because you're too obsessed with your work. Or maybe it's being a mom or maybe it's being a dad or maybe it's being in ministry. We all could use a good dose of the reality of who we are. Um, we have to remember that it's not just about behavior. It is about behavior, but it's not just about behavior. So our goal in walking with people is not just making sure they aren't acting out. That's an important part of it. But it's not just about that. I, when I uh, first came home to Stephanie and I wanted my parents to go to a conference and my dad, dad said, why do we need to go to that? You're not doing that anymore. And he didn't get it. He didn't get that I was doing it and it was a way of medicating this mess that was inside of me. And when I wasn't doing it, I was actually worse for a season. Because I didn't have anything. I was just in pain and confusion. And I needed people to walk with me and to love on me. Stephanie was one of those in those early days, miraculously. Uh, God sheltered her from being angry at me in the early days. She got over that. But um, <laughs> you need to be patient as you walk with people. Okay? <laughs> There's no timeline for this stuff. Um, and it really is, if you, if you have, the, if you have the, the gift of walking with someone who has surrendered their sexuality, someone who says, this isn't who I want to be, I want to follow the Lord with my sexuality, help me do that, it's going to be a messy, painful situation. And it is going to take time, and they're going to mess up, and you're going to get frustrated. You're not going to understand why they keep doing the same thing they've done before, and why um, they don't seem to get it and why they can't just quit doing that. You're going to get frustrated. They're going to get frustrated. It requires a lot of patience. I work with a group of men in, in our church now that struggle with sexual sin. And there's one same-sex attraction struggler and then, and then the other guys, it's all heterosexual pornography. And even, even me sitting there, I get frustrated at our meetings. Oh, why aren't you getting it? You know, I, get, I don't tell them that, but... Um, <laughs> But I get frustrated, and then I just have to go back and go, God, you're at work in them, and it's one day at a time, and I don't know their journey, and I don't know what they have. I don't know what you have to teach them now before they can even actually get to the place that I think they should be. And it's being patient and walking with people. I think when we talk about transgender and homosexuality, I think we just have to be honest that sometimes it's really unappealing, and I think you have to prepare to be disgusted so that you won't be disgusted. I know as a man struggling with that, there was this thought that anybody who knew I struggled, any other guy that knew I struggled with that would think I was gross. When I was a kid, I thought, God thought I was gross. 
And it's very hard to become close to someone who you think is disgusted by you. So be careful with that. And, and you know what I think the best thing to do is say, God, show me the disgustingness of my own sin. Show me that the thing that I think is okay is, is as disgusting to you as what they do is to me. And it's hard. I mean, we, we, we have a lot of transgen- more transgender people that just come in and out of our church. Um, and sometimes it's, it's very hard. And we, uh, it's a deep breath. Like, you just have to kind of go, okay, they're here. And they're hearing the gospel. And, but that little kid sitting behind them is looking at them funny. And, and it, everybody's feeling a little awkward right now. And this feels really weird. And I don't, I don't even like to see it. It's hard for me to watch because it looks so broken. And so, I mean, I have to be really honest and say, God, give me your heart for these people. Show me the disgust of my own behavior and my own actions and my own sin. We have to, have to be ready for that. And avoid timelines. If you are in a church and you're in leadership in a church, you need to prepare your church for the messiness of broken people. Joe Dallas, who's a great speaker on this topic, said that one church was like, what if the gay people come? Where will they sit? And he said, well, they can sit right down here in the front row with the gossipers and the overeaters. And the <laughs> but I think I've talked to so many people who want their church to be um, a place where people can come and hear the gospel. But they're afraid of those people coming because they're afraid of how their church members are going to treat them. So and that's a that's a bo- um, that's a top down cultural issue. So if you are a pastor or you have a good relationship with a pastor, um, the, the pastor is the one who sets that tone for your church. Um, but you need to be ready because the broken people of all sexual struggles, of all struggles, really, are messy. Um, for people coming out, because the gay community and the LGBT transgender community, because it, has, it is such a tight community, oftentimes people do. I mean, we see in San Francisco the easiest place in the world to be gay. People walk away, and they're like, I don't want this anymore. But they often go back because it's so lonely in the church. Because we don't do well with singleness, honestly. And we don't do well with, with people coming out of these really hard backgrounds. We're, we're, we worry about ourselves. We just go to lunch. We just go home. We have it. It's a, really easy for married couples and maybe for people in the, the normal singles group. you know. But, the, but, but these people feel like lonely. And so it requires that we are more active in reaching out and including them in our lives and in our homes. Last thing, just remember that you don't change people. This is really, I think, what um, I, every time I think of it, I say Afrosheen now. Afsheen <laughs> said, um, uh, we aren't doing the saving. You aren't doing, you aren't the one who's going to rescue these people. It's God who's going to do that in his timing and in his way, and you don't even know any of that. And that means that you just, you just pray. I think so often we underestimate the power of prayer. You pray for people, then you submit to God as you minister to them. God, I'm willing to do whatever you call me to do in this relationship. If you are actually, I think you look for God at work. Sometimes we, we expect the end and we miss all the little mon- monumental steps that God takes people on to get there. And so look for God at work on those steps and then celebrate when you see it. Um, I, that's, that's what I tell myself with this group of guys I'm, I'm working with. Like, I'd like for you to be here, but you know what? It's a pretty big deal that you even care because six months ago you didn't even care. 
So we're going to celebrate that you care. This isn't where we want to end up, but it's a big deal. You care about this. That's, that's, that's huge. So, f- so you look for those evidences of God at work. It's not rocket science, and there's no easy step, but I believe that we as Christians have the thing that the gay community needs, the LGBTQ and all the other letters that they need, that the promiscuous teenage girl needs, that the starlet who, um, has, uh, who, who falls prey to these predators because she has a weakened picture of sexuality that has then allows her to be wounded and broken and abused for these predators who think they somehow have the right to come into somebody's life and push sexuality on them. All of that is an evidence of brokenness, and we have the answer, and that is the gospel. The gospel is not to clean up society. The gospel is to change hearts one at a time. And sometimes Stephanie always encourages me because I want a tidal wave of change. She's like, one at a time. One at a time. And you may, be the one at a, you may have a one-at-a-time opportunity in your life with somebody you know. And you may want a big change, and you may want to see change fast, and you may want to see transformation fast, but I encourage you, share the gospel. Let God do his work. Let Jesus do his work in somebody's life. And even if you don't know about any of this stuff, you know what? You can still change the gospel. You can still share the gospel, allow the gospel to reach in there and transform. It does transform in different ways. Heterosexuality is not the opposite of homosexuality. The opposite of homosexuality is holiness. And that is our goal. All of us. On a, I, I'm reading James. The struggles in our life were to consider them joy because they produce steadfastness. And steadfastness has its ultimate end in our being complete and pre- prepared for every good work. We're, we're memorizing Hebrews 12. God disciplines us. He, he gets into our mess. And he changes us so that we will bear the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We're on a path towards holiness, and we can have all these people join us, and it can be this big, messy stew of grace. And it's a beautiful thing. Any questions? I know, did you have a question? I saw you raise your hand a long time ago, but. question was, how do you engage in conversation with homosexuals? Um, and I, I remember you, you said, just ask them the question, how long have you known? And, uh, and, and I, think, I think you have a relationship first. Like, <laughs> you know, you don't want to, oh, you're gay. Well, <laughs> so how long have you known? You know, um, you, you can have a relationship first, but it will go there. I think if they know you're a Christian, especially if they know you're a Christian, there, there could be some, they, they're going to want, and, and they want, I know that they want to be, the whole pro-gay theology movement is a desire to be okay. I really believe there's a great, great desire in gay people just to be okay. So they're going to try to, they're either going to be combative maybe, but they may also just want to know that you think they're okay. So they may uh, engage you in some specific things, and that's where I think you get into those questions. You know, tell me about it. I just, I, maybe I don't, I want to understand you. Um, and you can do that without val- without affirming their conclusion. 
their conclusion is, I'm gay, I was born gay, this is how I'm going to be, you know, that, you don't have to affirm their conclusion, but you affirm their experience. Uh, that must have been really hard. I mean, and so many gay people have really sad stories. I mean, they do. It should break our hearts. Yes? So there, I think there's a, there's, it's okay to have boundaries on, on details. <laughs> you know, so I think you, there's a place where it says that where you can say, um, hey, I don't, yeah. Uh, but, I, but I think it's your heart. So, so ultimately it's your heart. If your heart is disgusted by the mere thought that those two women engage in sexual behavior, um, that's a heart thing because then you're kind of missing how your own sin is disgusted, you know, the, that's the thing we we think we do rank sins like that's really bad but my gossip's not disgusting at all um but to god which is really the only person we sin against it's all equally disgusting you know and that's so it's really just your own heart um now if your heart there's a definite i mean i when i meet with people i tell them you know i do not i do not need to know details of your sexual behaviors um, I, I mean, I'll, I'll be upfront about that. And, it's, and I know it's not because I'm disgusted. It's because that's not edifying or purposeful in that. Um, I know as someone who struggles with that, I don't need to hear that. That's not safe for me. Um, if you have things in your background that those things are triggers or, you know, you, you know yourself, but it's really our heart. And preparing to be disgusted when I say that, I, I mean, it's just saying, okay, God, I, I have to tell you that those people, I don't want to be around them. And, and I need you, God, to strip me of my pride, of my sense of being better than them. I need you to remind me of what that, that the same thing that s- will save them was necessary to save me. Um, that's, that's what that means, really. But I think it is okay to put boundaries up there. I, I have boundaries, very clear boundaries when I talk to people. Yes? Well, like I said, I, I think it's largely, that's one thing that's, so sometimes the church, we as the church members, we can go in and we can do things, but there's some cultural elements of your church are often top down. Like, like if somebody walks in, transgender person walks down to the front row, how's the, the pastor can kind of set the tone for that. Um, in our church, we still have, I mean, amazingly in San Francisco, but we are a very old church and we, we have people that will come in and say, I don't, I don't like them. We have a couple that sits down in the front row right now i don't like them being here so then we say you know we're glad they're here we share the gospel every sunday we are glad we we are praying for them we are praying that the gospel penetrates their hearts uh, you know we 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 tell the church member that now we all the church they also know but they're, they're not going to be a part of this body and membership um because we believe what, I mean, we let them know we believe what they're doing is living outside of God's design, which is sin. Um, but we make sure the church knows we're welcome them there. Um, we have that, you know, we try to 
as, as the pastors, we try to model that. We, we listen, too, though, to our people. You know, we, we, we want to help them process it as well. Um, so I think it's just saying we want to be a place where sinners are welcome. When I gave, we gave our testimony in our church in Midland, Texas, which I always say Midland, Texas, put the red in redneck. And I got up and gave a testimony there. And our pastor said, we have said over and over that we believe that, change, that, that the gospel changes lives. And we're about to hear from somebody that's going to make us, uh, that's going to test whether or not we actually believe that to be true. And there was, you know, he set the stage. Like, we, if we can't welcome these people, if we can't accept them and walk with them towards Jesus, then we don't have any business saying that we believe Jesus Christ changes lives. You know, he set that out there. Um, and, and that didn't mean there wasn't some conflict in that, um, but he set the stage for that. And then we worked through the conflict based on that. So, yes. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot easier to say, you need to have grace and truth, and then let's just leave. Let's just say that. It's a lot easier. Um, I think, so there's two sides. Like, a lot of, ch- I, my, my old pastor used to say, a lot of churches are either big T or they're big G. You know, there's a spectrum, but, it, but people lean toward the T, and they're hammering the truth. Like, you are going to hell, and this is wrong. And, and then you got the big G. They're like, oh, God is love. And, and as if God is an enabler of destructive behavior in his love. But, but their God is love. And then they, they realize that there's the truth of God's word and God's grace. I mean, it was spoken of beautifully this morning. They come together and they, they enhance each other as truth and grace enhance each other. But if we believe that God's word is true, then it's not gracious for us not to bring that up in conversation or in relationship. If I believe that God's word is true and that God has set boundaries and that following him means that we deny ourselves and we follow him, if I believe that to be true, if I don't ever say that to somebody because I want to be loving, I'm not really being loving. So it's, it's sort of reminding myself, what, do I, what is love really to, to a person who's struggling with same-sex attraction? Is it never addressing their sin? Is that love? Or is it bashing them over the head with the Bible? Um, so we have to, and, and what it really requires is a lot of prayer. It requires prayer and it requires relationship. Because what I've, most often when I see this kind of come, come about, it's like somebody says, well, I, I, they, they, they end up going too heavy on truth when they haven't built a foundation of love in a relationship setting. Or, the, or they come, you know, they just throw grace at something and they never build a relationship either. So you have to have a relationship with the people and then you have to pray for God to show you when do I speak and when do I shut up. There are times when you don't say something and there are times when you do. I think most of us know, I mean, I think all of us have been in situations where we know that if we speak, it's going to be difficult and we're quiet. I mean, who's ever been in a situation like that and you walk away and you go, I should have spoken. God will lead you. And if he leads you, if you have prayerfully sought him and he leads you then he will equip you to engage that conversation but there are also times when i speak too soon i read in proverbs every other proverb says basically if you open your mouth you're a fool you know like that's what, and i'm like that's me so often i just blurt something out i haven't prayed about it i haven't thought about it and maybe at that moment i'm supposed to be one of those even a fool who remains silent looks wise maybe that's who i'm supposed to be so i think it's just being if you're in that relationship you ask the lord to guide you and he will i mean i believe there's no prayer that the 
that the Lord loves to answer more than, God, show me how to be a witness to the gospel in this relationship. And, and he'll guide you. Um, it's just, it's not easy. <laughs> so, yes. Uh, how are we on time, Joey? Okay, let me take w- one more question. And then if anybody wants to come talk to me afterward during the break, I'm I'm love to talk to you. Go ahead. <laughs> so the simple answer to that is um, I still share the gospel in that relationship as if they didn't know. So now that doesn't mean I'm, sitting there with the going down the Roman road, you know, it's, but in my relationship with them, I assume, you know, that I, here's what I believe personally about, I believe it, it's a very part, it's kind of a partial gospel. Um, and it, it's a man centered gospel. So I, I want to push them to Jesus and, and, and also in my relationship with them. So I'm, that may be one where you, sh- you begin to share more about how the gospel has impacted or changed your life. Um, the way God has guided and led you in in your relationship with him because sometimes I think that shows them something different. I'll tell you this: I have so many people I talk to in San Francisco who go to gay affirming churches um, for a while, and then they leave and they feel lost because they feel like I'm not getting if there's something off there, but I don't know where else I'm supposed to go. We have a gay couple that come to our church. One of them goes every other Sunday to his gay affirming church. The other one comes to our church every Sunday. And and sends us emails like about the truth and how much he loves hearing what he's hearing and, and how right on we are, you know, and he knows where we are. And every, I mean, there are times when things come up in sermons, but it doesn't matter. He's hung, hungry for the truth. So I think you just assume they're hungry for more than just something to make them feel good. Um, so. All right. I think if you have questions, I'd be glad to visit with you. And my email is on the handout. If you got a handout, it's just Mike at first dot com. If you have more long-term questions. Thank you guys.